0: keeps up i'm gonna have to rename the cloud effect <laughs> i know that sounds like a strange statement um, I'll, I'll come back around to that point it's just this episode and the next one are very much the cloud effect if you don't know what means, is don't worry i'll explain it later one of the things i find most interesting about this episode is its historical significance as I've mentioned before, there was still some debate, actually quite a bit of debate, de- of debate, amongst the fan base as well as in the writers' room, if the Borg were defeated. You know, the idea, basically, that the Borg were confi- confined to that one gargantuan cube, and that was the end of it. And this is the first time they officially codified the idea that, no, there's a whole Borg people out there with a fleet, and, well, now the situation has changed. And arguably that might have been for the worse... One of the things I find really fascinating about TNG in general, forgive me for the segue here, is TNG really started to go into world building in a different way than Star Trek had prior to now, which is funny because DS9 will then take it to the next level after that in really fleshing out specific species or concepts into more nuanced ideas. TOS and the movies fleshed out Starfleet, but that's kind of it, other than maybe the big three. And so you got a a couple species that were fleshed out. And, you know, Starfleet, the Federation. And that was kind of it. For the most part, the pieces, the other pieces were just kind of left dangling in the background. Then TNG was like, okay, we're going to introduce new stuff. And, of course, they had no idea what they were doing. And there wasn't really a mainliner behind everything. So what we ended up getting was... Okay, here's the Ferengi. They're these big, bad villains. Well, they're kind of villainous. Okay, they're a little bit of a joke. Here's the comic relief. In short, lots of ideas were introduced in TNG that are completely contradicted by later Star Trek, including later TNG, because they kept developing it because they didn't write it out in advance. There was no plan. There was no path. It was just, well, it's what DS9 does a lot. It was backloaded storytelling rather than front-loaded storytelling. This is why, just to name three examples right off the top of my head, the Ferengi, the Cardassians, and the Bajorans, when they are first introduced in TNG, all three of them, are substantially different than what they would develop into, mostly over the course of TNG and DS9. Which, of course, leads me to the Borg, which have actually changed every single time they've shown up, and will continue to do so until First Contact. And, arguably, they still keep changing in Voyager, but I, I just want to kind of leave that off to the side. Although... I, want, I have a quote here, really quick, really quick. So Ronald D. Moore said about this episode, it's a good way to bring the Borg back. They're very limiting in the way they are. There's a huge collective, no voice to communicate with. You can't relate to these guys. We keep saying they're unstoppable, and if we keep stopping them, it undercuts how unstoppable they truly are. Ronald D. Moore, funnily enough, basically didn't work on Voyager. Hmm. Anyways. <clears throat> But I'm getting off topic. So the point is, this is another episode to help continue to develop the Borg. We now understand that they are a people. We understand a little bit more about how they function on an individual level. Certain things that will later be developed would completely change this episode if they had been written in advance. Let me give you a direct example. Nanomachines hadn't even been conceptualized for the Borg yet. Never mind the actual assimilation tubes they have. One Borg, one drone, with you know a full supply of nanomachines would be able to take over the Enterprise-D under the right circumstances. But it's okay, because those things hadn't been invented yet, so that's why Hugh doesn't have them. Now, we could do some mental gymnastics to try and explain this, you know, like, oh, maybe he's part of the Scout, or maybe not every Borg has those things, or whatever. But let's just be real. The reason that he doesn't have those things is because they weren't invented yet. But it is interesting to go back to an episode like this, because... If the Borg were at this point, what they have developed to since then, then they would have never beamed aboard a single drone. No errand of mercy. No nothing. That's that's a, that's a nightmare scenario and very hard to contain. No, I find that interesting. Now, <clears throat> I also have well. <laughs> I'll circle back around to that point. I do want to give real quick praise to Jonathan DeLarco, which I hope I'm saying his name right. He's the gentleman who plays Hugh. He had actually auditioned to play uh, Wheaton, wow, Wesley, all the way back in Season 1, and unfortunately didn't get the role. But I think he actually does a really good job with his role. He has to portray a very specific slice of innocently threatening, and then innocently confused, and then slowly losing the innocence and then slowly becoming the individual that we would come to think of as Hugh. He has to do a, a gradient of portrayal across the episode. And I think he nails it, personally. He's one of the things that really helps sell me on this episode. As well as, of course, Picard. In many ways, this is a Picard, Guinan, Geordi episode. Which is the shame because Crusher's the one who initiates everything. But you notice, Crusher is like, we must bring him on board, and then we must defend his rights. And then she just kind of leaves the narrative. This is a script by Rene Echeverria and Jerry Taylor. Now, I have respect for both in their own particular talents, especially Mr. Rene. But the catch here is that there's a lot of holes in this episode. Crusher especially, I don't want to use the term straw man, but she comes across as a flimsy excuse to get the plot going. She insists that she must cure this Borg. It's absolutely mandatory. And if she hadn't insisted, then the episode wouldn't have happened. And of course, during the meeting, this is hysterical. During the meeting, they're like, okay, we must go ahead and decide what we're going to do about this. We must use them as a weapon. It's the only way. And the only one at the meeting who shows any hesitance towards this is Crusher, for no real explained reason. And worse, this is the part that gets me, all of her arguments are flimsy and stupid. I wrote down two that really stuck out at me. Well, there's been no formal declaration of war. You don't declare war on a hurricane. You don't need to. And as Troy immediately shuts her down on, the Borg have have in every way declared war on them. If an enemy power, which has a ship and personnel, goes to your homeworld with intent on conquering it and very nearly succeeds, I think war were declared. Second point, we can't use a Borg civilian. Now, this is kind of a unique point, admittedly, and so I'm not willing to call it completely stupid, but Crusher should be well aware of the fact that there is no such thing, at least not with the Borg. Thanks to the collective and the nature of what they are, there are no Borg civilians. There's technically not even a Borg military or Borg science division. There's just the Borg. So it doesn't quite work in the same way. Now, later, Star Trek would kind of flesh that out to show that there's specific adjuncts, which have specific functions, and so technically you could say they have their own divisions, but even under such circumstances, there would still be no civilian Borg, just science military Borg, and defense military Borg, and analysis military Borg, and so forth and so on. Anyways, I mentioned this is a Picard vehicle, though. Let's rewind back to that. There's a scene where Picard gets the news that it's a Borg. And and the camera work is good. By the way, this is directed by Robert Letterman, and I know what you're thinking. Laura, you keep telling me these directors as we go through this, but I I'm sorry, I've been trying to keep track. I've got my notebook, I've got my names written down, you know, I've got Gabriella Beaumont, I've got David Livingston, you know, I've got Cliff Bowl, but I don't recognize a Robert Letterman. Well that's okay. He's only directed two episodes of Star Trek ever, including this one. And this is his first. That's impressive, in my opinion. Now, granted, he'd already done camera work and editing work for TNG, so it's not like he was unaware of or hands-off to the show. But I think he did a good job with his first outing here. It's a shame he never got to do more, other than the the one that I mentioned, which I can't even think of the name of right now. It's the one where the lady blows up, and then like they establish the Warp 5 barrier for no reason, and then they ignore that for the rest of Star Trek. (laughs) You know that one, right? Anyways, moving on. So, Picard's reaction. I've always given credit to Patrick Stewart, and I'm pretty sure everyone else in the world does the same thing for the same reasons. But my favorite part of his acting is actually his face. It's when he does his understated acting that I really love him as an actor. What he does is he portrays someone going through true panic and struggling to deal with that. It takes him seconds long, hard seconds to be able to even speak after finding out that there's a Borg there. And if you watch his face, it just slides into a scowl and then locks into place, like he can't let himself go any farther. Or, to be slightly more accurate, he's effectively in shock. He is dealing with someone who is... He's dealing with... We are dealing with, excuse me, someone who is effectively stunned, literally stunned by this news. And it takes several seconds for his command brain to kick back into gear after hearing that. It is a wonderfully understated scene, and it's awesome. So, they decide, okay, we're going to go ahead and we're going to use him as a biological weapon. This leads me to my next point. There's this interesting bit where Guinan and Picard are fencing. We've already established the fencing thing, I think i got to admit, TNG comes up with so many things on the fly so late into the show, it's kind of hard to remember what is invented where, but I'm pretty sure the fencing thing was already a thing. And he's teaching fencing to Guinan. Guinan's point here is interesting. She, he says it's an errand of mercy. So she pretends to be injured and then attacks him. And her point is, you were wrong. Her intended point is, you were wrong for showing me mercy, for feeling sorry for me. But the real point is actually a much more re- realistic one, and one that is true in real life. It is dangerous to show mercy. It is dangerous to reach a handout to someone, because you never know what the reaction is going to be. Sometimes you'll find someone who just needs some help, and you'll help them. Sometimes you'll find someone who will take advantage of you. Sometimes it's a trap, and they're just wanting to hurt you. All three of those, and the gradients in between them, are true in real life. It is a risk to try and help other people. And that is a very valid point, in my opinion. It's not the one she intended, but it's the one that came across, which is funny. Because that brings me to something else. The stated intent by basically everyone involved in this episode was to show how Guinan and Picard are prejudiced. and They have to overcome their prejudice. It's a very Star Trek kind of a thing, right? That's all a load of hooey in this case. <laughs> now, this is, of course, just the realm of opinion, so I'll go ahead and say that, because I don't want to say in my opinion for the next 15 sentences, okay? So, in my opinion, boilerplate, this episode is not about overcoming prejudice. It's not. Picard and Guinan both have a very valid prejudgment of the Borg, not just because of what they've gone through, which is the emotional side of it, but from a purely intellectual perspective, the two of them get the Borg in ways that basically no one else does. And the Borg are unique. This isn't someone with a different skin color or a different gender, gender, excuse me, or someone who's wearing different clothing or someone who's from a slightly different country or speaks a different language. This is the Borg and we have to treat them under the unique circumstances of being the Borg. As I mentioned earlier, there are no Borg civilians. It's simply the nature of what they are. You could argue what it is, actually. Now, I bring that up, though, because I still think the episode works very well with its unintended message. That that it's not about overcoming prejudice, but rather understanding the nature of what that word means. Obviously, and with very good reason, the word prejudice is used as a negative word, a bad word, a negative connotation word, because that means to prejudge. You look at someone who you've never seen before, and you you judge them, which it's probably worth noting we all do to some extent or another. So I hate to get into that particular murky weeds, but the fact of the matter is it's kind of a normal and natural aspect of human society, because you don't always have the time to get to know someone fully well. It's when you take it to an extreme that it gets bad. When we get into bigotry, when we get into racism or speciesism or genderism, any kind of extreme take on prejudice is when it really gets to bad, in my opinion. Now, let's get back to these specific circumstances here. Let's, let's leave real life for a second, because I just realized I just painted a giant target on my face. The Borg don't operate the way other people do. And it would be dangerous and foolish to presume that they do. To try and humanize an enemy like that. It is astonishingly dangerous. And I know what you're thinking. But Hugh, Hugh is an incredibly unique circumstance. A singular Borg who was damaged and therefore capable of being repaired while being segregated from everything else that would make them what they are. And even then, Hugh only developed through droid effect, because this is an example of droid effect, thanks to repeated and consistent and substantial and very carefully crafted environmental circumstances. If you, for example, simply took a drone and dropped them off here, the odds of droid effect happening are actually kind of low. Yeah, I know, Seven of Nine, whatever. Seven's kind of a different case, and it's also Voyager, so let's just leave that over there. But instead, Hugh was there, chopped off from the collective, both physically as well as with the the dampening field, and they patiently and carefully explained to him, repeatedly and with interest, what it's like to be a person, what it's like to have a name, what it's like to make choices, all sorts of stuff. Are consistently and repeatedly explained to him so he can very slowly begin to process what it it means to be this thing and develop it himself. This is droid effect, to be clear, but the point is this is non-feasible on a large scale. You can't just do this to the Borg. It took all this time and effort, and again very controlled environment, to be able to explain to one drone what it was like to be an individual and allow droid effect to take place. Because they keep saying individual, but it really boils down to is a degree of sentience and sapience. Most Borg drones, bleh, most Borg drones, functionally, are not sentient sapient beings. Not really, they are pieces of a whole. Picard rather aptly uses the comparison that your arm is not a person; it's a part of you. Drones are built and well, excuse me. Droids, Drones are rebuilt, let's use correct terminology here, into becoming a part of the whole. And each individual cell being crafted from an individual and turned into, functionally, a cell of the greater whole. So the potential is certainly there for droid effect, because the, the, uh, uh, the base requirements are still there. But you can see how it's not really feasible on a large scale. Yeah, I know what happened in Voyager. Don't. Just don't. Now you're probably thinking, Lord, you're just talking about the reality of the circumstances. What's the actual message of the show? In my opinion, the message of the show is understanding that a prejudice does not always apply. And I know that sounds like such a dumb statement, but I, I bring that up because their intended message was their prejudice is wrong. But it's not. It is demonstrably not. However, the wrong was how they were applying it universally. Thus, in these specific and careful scenarios, we see an exception. And exceptions should be accounted into something like a prejudgment. Now, this doesn't really work in real life in the same way it does in fiction. Because, I mean, I can't look at a French person or a British person and say, all French people are all the same except for, like, five. You know, it it doesn't work in the same manner. But I think this is how this episode works for me, because this isn't an allegory for real life. It feels like it was intended to be because of the whole anti-prejudice message, but instead it feels like it's more an allegory for nothing. Or rather, it's not an allegory at all. It is simply the message that it is in-universe. And I actually appreciate that in this case. I should probably stop talking about this. I'm done. I'm painting just all these targets on my face. I'm, I can't wait for the comment section. Let's go ahead and talk about uh, what do we got here. This is what I mentioned. This is when we get the collective voices thing too. Uh, they had the the boy the, the Borg scout the Boy Scout the Borg scout is a ticking clock. Uh, Whoopi Goldberg does a really good job in this episode. I'm actually really curious what was going through the actress's head when she was told to portray someone who thinks of a person as a thing. I mean, think about that for a second. But she does very well. She does a great job. As I mentioned before with the whole prejudice does not apply universally message, she applies her prejudice to him, and it bounces off. And, appropriately, she recognizes that and is like, huh. And she is legitimately surprised by it, but then she takes it in stride and adapts to this new information. Because Whoopi Bolt Goldberg is awesome. This then leads us to when the episode completely fails for me. They come up with an algorithm which is designed to portray an image, which they can't process, and every time you come up with a fake solution, it can't process. And basically, let's just, let's just summarize this. They come up with a 30 go to 10 error for the Borg. On the off chance you don't know that, and forgive me, I'm sure most of you do. Base line programming, right? Line 10, uh, type, hello world. Line 20, uh, I guess run or print or whatever. Actually, I'm not actually sure how this works. (laughs) Think about it. I haven't done basic programming in an extremely long time. It's okay. I've got something that has it right here. Give me just a second. You think I'm kidding me. This is the kind of thing that... Here we go, here we go. Uh... Oh, I'm sorry. I, I, was, I was actually doing that. So line 1, print, you know, hello world. Line 2, go to 1. Line 3, run. You know, it's a very I call it a 30 go to 10 because that's what my programmer friends call it. I'm not sure why the, what the 2 is in there. Unless 3 is the run command? I don't know. Anyways, point being, it's a loop. It's a basic programming feedback loop. Which is so basic that we've had ways around that since about the 70s. Now, you could argue that there that the logic of the writers, and I've heard this argument before, was that when this episode was being done, which was about 92, computers were not super advanced yet in the sense that you could actually do what we call soft-locking a computer by doing a 30-go-to-10. I just realized I'm probably going to get a lot of comments explaining the 30-go-to-10 terminology. Go ahead. I I, I, I don't mind. <laughs> but... The catch is, there's a lot of logic loops or infinite calculations that exist in real life. Um, what's the square root of 2? Or what's the final digit of pi? You know, just to name 2 right off the top of my head. You can't tell me that the Borg could be defeated by the, the Enterprise approaching them and having a giant hologram of an M.C. Escher painting going out in front of it, right? I mean, come on. This is why I say this is the cloud effect, because this is nonsense, and everyone in the episode treats this as if they have the ultimate weapon to defeat the Borg, which have just been established to be a people, not a ship, forever, and it's dumb. And unlike most of the other parts of, the, of fiction, I, like, I can't excuse this as dumb in character. I think this is dumb out of character. I think this is an aspect of bad writing. It's a dumb premise it is the cloud effect because i do like this episode a lot it's just this idea has bothered me since this episode first came out even as a kid i looked at this like oh come on really that's how they're going to beat the borg and as an adult i look back and I'm like oh my come on this is even stupider than i thought it was what i find funny is it completely skips the real dilemma but let's talk about picard before we talk about the real dilemma Picard compares Hugh to a lab animal that's being experimented on. And then he says, drop it. What I find most interesting is that there's only probably two people on this ship who can reach out to Picard and get him to change his mind. And one of them can't. Talk about why in a moment. Picard has been utterly distancing himself from this situation. To him, it is a calculation, a variable, a program. I myself have talked about distance theory many, many, many times. And the only reason I say it's a theory is because I can't prove it 100%. But I firmly believe in this theory, to be clear. It's the idea that the the closer you are to actually doing something, the more difficult it is to do, the more personal it is. And the more distant, the easier. The usual explanation I use is killing. I, I know that's horrible, but it comes up a lot in fiction. It's a lot harder to strangle someone to death than it is to shoot them, than it is to order their death than it is to push a button on a console and so forth and so on. In short, the further distance you are from the act, the less it affects you. And I believe, again, a theory, that this is an aspect of human psychology. Which leads me to Picard, who is doing everything in his power to distance himself from this. And speaking as a trauma victim myself, I understand that completely because in some cases it's the only defense. It's the only thing you can do to, to, to tolerate it, to cope with it is to just, nope. Nope. Sorry. I got to think about what I'm cooking tonight. Um, uh, I've already vacuumed, so I don't have to do that. I am going to need to do the laundry in a couple days. You know, you just, you distance yourself. You think about other things. Obviously, I have not been through something quite as horrible as Picard has because I'm not sure there is such a thing in real life. But the point is, I get that idea. And so what it takes to force him to remove that distance is one of his closest friends who also has been through the same thing. See, Crusher couldn't do this for Picard. This is this is actually kind of weird. And it's one of the only reasons I'm willing to forgive her being removed from the narrative. Because it had to be Guinan. Guinan is close enough and understands. Truly, Janosko's what he has been through. There's this wonderful bit where she says, I'm not sure he is still a Borg. And Picard's response... The other thing that Patrick Stewart does really well is he knows how to throw steel spikes into his voice. I don't know how else to describe it. It's not acidic. It's not vicious. He just knows how to layer his words with iron. That also happens to be spite. It's, it, I know that's a strange way to explain it. But he just lays into it. This is not, it's not a person, damn it. It's a bog, and, and, and turning this into some kind of pet. And he just rants for a bit. And it's probably the first time. No, there's no probably. It is the first time since family we've seen Picard having to cope with this at all. All those emotions just bore right through his skin. And they're all right there on his face. That's a horrible mental image. I apologize. And so, Guinan ultimately decides to not try to convince him, and instead simply says, if you're going to go through with this, it might be harder to live with than you think if you don't at least face him first. And of course Picard takes that to heart, because she's his friend, and she knows. So then we see him pacing in his room. And once again, that wonderful facial acting. Worf calls up, we're ready. And Picard doesn't say, okay, come on up. No, what Picard does is hesitate. Like you can just see the dread. And as he's stealing himself to actually visually look at a Borg again. That kind of manic horror. And finally, he just locks his face down, puts himself under control, turns around, and attacks him. And he does his whole negative uh, negative reinforcement tactic. I am Locutus of Borg. You will help me assimilate these people. Because he's pushing him. He He wants to see the Borg. So he treats him as a Borg. And it is Hugh who responds as Hugh that ultimately changes Picard's mind. Now, I give the episode credits on this point. Picard has always been a pretty big defender of individual right, of free will, if you want to put it in such terms. In fact, that came up in The Perfect Mate, if you remember. He was willing to excuse a lot of crap, but the moment her individual will was being infringed upon, he stepped in. And they then decide, okay, now what? And the interesting thing is, the big dilemma of the episode becomes, what do we do about this? Because the, previous, the, the real dilemma, which I'll we'll talk about in just a second, is ejected immediately. And instead, it's no. We can't do that. There's no debate whatsoever. Instead, what do we do now? Well, we could erase his memory and send him back. Well, that's horrible. Well, we could send him back and have it get his memory erased. Well, that's horrible. And this is the one and only time Crusher enters the narrative to say, well, what do we ask what he wants? And, of course, Picard is all in favor of that. So Picard and LaForge flat out try to explain to him, this is your choice. Hugh, of course, then makes the ethical choice of saying, I'm saying ethical, that's the wrong way to phrase it. I'm sorry, uh, the, the cold, the cold calculus, the opposite of ethical choice. I am not worth as much as all of you. I must go back. I don't want to, but I have to. Hugh chooses that to save his friends, which is a hell of a thing. And, of course, uh, at the end, Hugh actually looks to LaForge as he's beaming away, which was a nice little touch in its own horrible way, but will also lead to dissent, which we'll talk about when we get there. Now, I want to talk about the real dilemma. I myself have said that when it gets to extremes, the rules get thrown out the window. Because at a certain point, things don't apply the same way. If you have to murder a man, murder, not kill, in cold blood, with your bare hands, or else you don't get a piece of candy. There's no debate there, right? I mean, I know some of you are probably jokingly going to be in the comments like, Oh, I'd totally kill a guy for candy. But you know what I mean. I guarantee you 100% of the people listening to this right now would not take that decision. They they wouldn't do it. No, absolutely not. And I can say that with absolute certainty. Now imagine that the sun is going to go supernova unless you murder that person and kill everyone on Earth and annihilate the, the star system. Like I said, when it goes to extremes, the rules don't apply the same way. In some cases, they just go away entirely. Now, this generally only applies in fiction, which is why I feel safe going ahead and laying this down as a a rule rather than a theory. Because fiction is when extremes can really come into being. We don't see a lot of, oh no, the star's going to explode unless we, we don't pet this kitten kind of scenarios in real life. We see it all the time in fiction, which brings me to the real dilemma. The Borg are an extreme. They are an extreme threat and an extreme problem. Under all other circumstances, tossing an innocent life into the maw of hell simply to destroy his own people would be unconsciousable. conscionable. Would be wrong. Would be really, really wrong. And you'll notice in the episode proper, it's not even brought up as an option. It's immediately torpedoed. But that is the actual dilemma here, and a dilemma the episode completely bypasses. In fact, I'm not even sure the writers thought of this. Do we destroy an innocent life to save ourselves from an extreme threat? Now, of course, this M.C. Escher threat isn't a threat at all, and in fact is extremely stupid. And I'm not even going to talk about the whole individuality as the real virus thing, because I'm sorry, the Borg assimilate individuals all the damn time, so I'm not sure what the difference hue would be, but I'm getting off topic. We'll talk about that in the descent. <laughs> descent. Good name. Good name for it. The point being that this is a real dilemma. This is a moral and ethical dilemma, the kind of thing that you could center an entire episode around, and they don't. It's never even discussed, with the sole exception of the meeting I mentioned in brief earlier, where Crusher comes up with really dumb and stupid arguments against it. I actually kind of wish this dilemma had been the core point of the episode. At the same time, I'm okay with it not. In fact, can I just take it aside and say one of the things I like about this episode, there's no threat of the week, there's no romance of the week. There's none of the other tripe that I just get really sick of in TV in general. Instead, this is just a really strong character piece. And it's all about the individuals and how they develop. There's no real threat from the Borg in this episode. Not really. And there's no real, you know, Oh, God, Hugh's going to take over the ship. No. It's just all about the characters and what they're doing with the circumstances. It's a good episode. But again... I feel like that dilemma could have been discussed at least a little bit. And instead, like I said, it's ejected entirely. I'm actually curious what you think. Is it acceptable to destroy an innocent life in order to save a, a large, large group of people from an extreme threat? It, it, let's assume for a moment that we actually have the ability to do that and not the MC Escher thing. I'm sorry, I can't get over that. It's just so dumb. Anyways, anyways. I hope you've enjoyed my thoughts on I, Borg. I'll see you next time.